It's been one hell of a year so far. We're edging through the middle of one of the largest protest movements of recent times. Black Lives Matter. And there's something different happening this time. Fuck the police. A change is gonna come. The revolution will not be televised. Fight the power. Chances are you've heard all of these anthems. On May 25th, everything changed, and anthems like these took on a new currency. I'm Laura McInnes-Ray, and you're listening to Beneath the Rhythm, an RX Music podcast. We are here today in response to a legacy of police violence that most recently took the lives of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Tony McDade, Alan Ruiz, Rayshard Brooks. Brooks, say the names. And the names go on and on and on. Today we take to the streets in defense of black lives. Right now, communities across the country are rethinking municipal budgets and reevaluating whether the police are doing jobs they were never intended to do. Music has always played a part in politics. We spoke to musicians Havaya Mighty, Shad, Owen Sound Lee, and Sandy Hudson of Black Lives Matter Toronto to explore the Black Lives Matter movement and how music mobilizes protest messages. My name is Shad, Shad Rakabango. I'm an artist and also the host of Hip Hop Evolution on Netflix. Is there a specific song or songs that you think of that inspires hope or positive change? You know, these different examples, if you look at NWA and Curtis Mayfield, there's like two very different examples of how to, of how artists can can speak into a moment, right? Maybe just the nature of the 60s or the nature of Curtis Mayfield, but his message and the Staple Singers too, you know, it was more not as direct and as frank as NWA, you know, but it uh, it all works. It all carries a feeling of inspiration and stuff. Yeah, the, I guess there's all these complicated questions for artists about how to respond, but ultimately, um, you know, we got to trust our guts and and kind of go, hey, like maybe there's a lot going on, but I just need to make this song that feels good because that's kind of what I want to hear. Or, you know, maybe I'm an artist that sort of makes fun up tempo stuff, but I got a lot to say, you know, like we watched Beyonce, for example, change a lot in the last five or so years in terms of her message, right? Like she had to make a hard choice and pivot and go, you know what, mm-hmm. like there's things I want to say and I need to, that probably required some risk. And yeah, so it, it is a really interesting question, Laura, of like, how should artists respond? And I think it's very individual and we all got to trust our guts. My name is Sandy Hudson. I am an activist. I work with Black Lives Matter Toronto. From the curfews and protests we've seen, a lot of there's been a lot of societal shifting taking place since May 25th. What sort of changes have you noticed being based in uh, in LA over the past couple of weeks? Um, well, it feels like actually, it feels like I've been based in Canada just because even though I'm based in LA, you know, we're all inside. And so my world is what's happening um, in front of my computer screen. And so much of that for me is Canadian. And But I, but I do uh, have a little bit of an in to what's going on in the States as well. And I think we're seeing a very similar shift on both sides of the border, which is that I think for the first time in a really long time, it is popular, very popular to have a discussion about the police, a critical discussion about the police, about what they do, how they do it. And I think that that really comes from a cultural shift that we've witnessed happen very, very quickly about how we feel about how we tackle the problems of safety and security in our society, and also a cultural shift in how we recognize uh, how police forces currently do kill Black people and Indigenous people and do not provide safety and security for those populations. I think that studying and activism go hand in hand. I'm very, very nerdy. I'm probably going to be in school for the rest of my life. I just (laughs) love learning so much, deeply passionate about it, and I love teaching a lot. I'm also very deeply passionate about that. I think that 
if we are doing activism in some way, part of what we're asking for is to shift the world in a way that perhaps we haven't seen before. It creates a hole in what we're able to imagine if we don't give space to thinking through what that world that we've never seen before could look like. And that's, you know, creating knowledge. It's creating a new type of knowledge. It's thinking through something really difficult. I wanted to go back to school for the social justice education degree to think through the kind of twin oppressions of of colonization, anti-blackness, white supremacy, and how they all work together. Uh, Because we were doing a lot of uh, black and indigenous solidarity work through BLM, and I wanted to uh, make sure that I knew my history right, um, had my principles down, and um, could develop ideas around those things that I could very strongly stand behind and feel confident about. We need a commitment to the uncomfortable and difficult work of shifting society. And I'm I'm starting to see that more, pe- more and more people are realizing that in this discussion about defunding the police. I've seen more and more people kind of open up their eyes and like be willing to open up their minds and think, wow, maybe our world has to change so significantly that this thing that makes me feel comfortable because I've been told that it, it should make me feel comfortable forever maybe needs to shift. And then taking the step to say, in fact, I demand its shift. And without its shift, we can't do away with anti-Black racism. And that's the piece. That is the piece that we need. It's not enough to say I love everybody. It's not enough to say I hate racism. You know, It's not enough to say I'm anti-racist and to tweet about it. It mm. is to have the commitment to shifting to society. And if you have that commitment, that means you have to convince other people. I'm not saying everybody get out there and become an activist, but I am saying that if you've been convinced and you exist within some other institution, which you do, either the institution of your family, you know, school, work, whatever it is, wherever you congregate with other people, you have a responsibility to make sure that those people are also convinced and to have those conversations and to engage politically if that's something that you do. I I know that some people are just morally opposed or politically opposed to, to engaging with representational politics. But if you do engage with representational politics, then you should be talking to your representatives about how this is a thing that that demands attention from power and demands a shift in the way uh, that we uh, provide safety and security services to our society. I think we were also hit with the fact that we were literally just coming out, not coming out of even, but we were all still dealing with a pandemic. This year has thrown everything at us all at once and everyone is sort of trying to get their footing sort of how can I, you know, where can I help in this way or what am I allowed to do this? Have you seen sort of the impact of COVID on the on the way that people were getting involved? Yeah, definitely. I think there's two things there. One is that I do think it had an impact on the impetus or the inclination to get out and protest and to, to demonstrate from within the Black community specifically, because this is a community that's been disproportionately affected by COVID and are experiencing more layoffs, but also experiencing this this kind of phenomenon where it's like you must work through the danger and so experiencing also a lot of death in our community. And then at the same time, when everybody's supposed to be in their home safe, still impacted by the type of anti-Black racism that kills us and still forced to see that on our screens and deal with it. And so I think that we were being squeezed almost in two different ways uh, in, in a way that just kind of was the last straw moment for a lot of people. Similarly, I think that with COVID, the way that a lot of people were not going outside, going to work and were maybe had a little bit more time to engage politically I think that that also had an impact on how they were able to pay attention to this phenomenon in a way that they haven't before, of how the police kill black people, and also had an impact on the way that people are able to respond. And I think that the amount of time, just sheer time that people had in their lives to get involved with civic engagement is as mm-hmm. a result of uh, partially the, the coronavirus. And I think that that's something we have to think about 
um, when we exit the COVID-19 crisis, because don't we want people engaging in this way all the time? And if they're not, like, shouldn't we all be shaping our world this way? And if we're not, how do we rectify that? What do we need to change? Is there a specific song for you personally that you remember inspiring hope or strength when you started getting involved in in activism or, or a song that inspires you now? The song that I've been playing over and over and over again. And I just, it just gets me going in the morning when I have to like get up earlier than I'm not a morning person. So the fact that I've been getting up so early has been hard. Uh, but the song that is, that really keeps me going right now is called How I Feel. It's by a tribe called Red. It features mm-hmm. Leonard Sumner, Shad, and Northern Voice. And it's just a fantastic it it's the music is over this drum beat that just uh, it just is so inspiring as we took a video of one of the actions that we did last week and so that song will be on it and I'm so happy for people to see it today because it's just such an inspiring uh, piece of art on Juneteenth uh, which is um, the day that commemorates the abolition of slavery in Texas specifically in the United States And for those of your listeners who don't know, the abolition of slavery date in Canada is August 1st, and that's uh, for all the Commonwealth countries. But uh, June 10th, June 19th, uh, there were solidarity actions all over the world. And we painted, I mean, I was in LA, but (laughs) activists in BLM in Toronto painted uh, defund the police in front of Toronto police headquarters. It's Juneteenth. They were also so scheduled to make a press conference that day, the police, and they ended up canceling it. They were just going to announce um, how they were going to do more of the same. Uh, more money for uh, police um, mental health stuff, uh, more money for uh, body cameras and so on. And we were like, no, um, we're going to we're going to paint this in front of your house because you're not listening. Well, I could never imagine the pain in the mother's heart when life takes a turn for the and creators up becomes another canvas that will never be completed i'm a few degrees away and a thousand times defeated my energy's depleted but i want to stand and fight swinging with the i think the biggest question that i have and so i hope other people have as well is like where are our politicians i have never seen um the type of action that i saw this in the last few weeks uh, globally, but also just in Canada, if we just consider Canada, in over 60 cities all over Canada, there were at least one action. Most of those cities had two actions, okay? And we're talking from Iqaluit to uh, Charlottetown to Victoria to Stratford Mm -hmm. to like, you know, everywhere is having these protests the politicians will come out and kneel, but they have the power to change things. They have the power to shift funding to the RCMP. And, you know, the government went ahead and continued with their regular funding um, just last week, quietly, without <laughs> saying anything to anyone, even though right. people are so frustrated with, you know, more and more of these videos coming out of the RCMP, you know, dragging a UBC student and stepping on her head when they were called to do a wellness check, killing Chantal Moore and Rodney Levi on the East Coast. It's like, it. why would they do that? What are they saying? Not much. I mean, you you maybe you'll hear Jagmeet Singh call somebody out for being racist because emotion didn't pass. But take a look at the text of the motion. It's not that useful. What happens afterwards? Are you changing your own party policy? No, the NDP's party policy actually is more funding for police to to do better training on sexual violence and uh, to fund community policing, which had devastating effects for black people in Toronto. Where are the politicians responding to this? I cannot think of a single issue where so many people would be on the streets for over two weeks of sustained protest and not a single politician says, look, we need to adopt new policy for this party or we need to put something in place to change these conditions. And is there any more proof that we need to say Black Lives Matter strongly because the society clearly undervalues us and clearly undervalues Indigenous people than the fact that so many people can be out on the streets and for power to simply 
just fucking ignore it. It just makes me so angry. And those are the questions we should be asking ourselves. It's hard to listen, but listen, cause it's much harder living it than listening to the hardships. So the heart's condition, the condition, the air, when the air, their conditions keep cool, but the more tears, sometimes it clear the vision, not what I see. Been a long time coming to drop, running, rocking, reaching new peaks of the young. Here again is Shad. You know, you're talking about this thing of, of looking backwards, because I think that that's definitely happening, you know, right now as far as people looking for inspiration in music. And I think that's because of the moment and everything that's happening um, post George Floyd and and, uh, and Amy Cooper. But I think also because we're in this pandemic. And so I, I think in this pandemic period, uh, people are listening to older music more than they're listening to new music. So it's like, a, I think it's like a, a combination of those two things that's happening right now. Um, so yeah, I mean, NWA feels uh, very relevant. Uh, that song and and other songs like it um, that have been made in hip hop over the years. The Kendrick, you yeah, you talked about all right. Um, I think people are also feeling inspired by the '60s and uh, the Staples Singers and and Curtis Mayfield. My my good friend um, is a DJ Scratch Bastard. He just did a, a four hour Curtis Mayfield DJ set you know, from his house that he live streamed, you know, one of the great voices of the 60s in the, in the civil rights movement, you know. I think people are really drawing inspiration from the past and, and you know, these different examples, if you look at NWA and Curtis Mayfield, there's like two very different examples of how to, of how artists can, can speak into a moment, right? Maybe just the nature of the 60s or the nature of Curtis Mayfield, but his message and the staple singers too, you know, it was more not as direct and as frank as NWA, you know, but it, uh, it all works. It all, you know, carries a feeling of inspiration and stuff. Yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of looking back. You know, I've, I've even been listening to hip hop that I that I grew up on or or even like artists from maybe not artists, but albums from maybe 10 years ago. I'm thinking about Lupe Fiasco and first album. I'm thinking about Kanye's late registration songs like Heard Him Say and Crack Music and all this, all this. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. Looking backwards, but at various eras and various styles of speaking into what's happening. And you were featured on uh, Toby's track 24, the Toronto remix. You had a verse alongside, um, you know, Jazz Cartier and Havaya Mighty, all Toronto-based heavy hitters. And your verse is particularly striking. Like it, you're painting a picture of learned assimilation and and fear and sort of what what was the process like when you knew what message you wanted to bring with that song specifically? Um, Cause that's, I know that the video was shot in Toronto and it kind of speaks more widely to racism in Canada and yeah, just sort of what was your process mm. like once you knew? Mm -hmm. So with that song, um, so Toby played me the original and I, I heard, I understood right away what he was trying to say with the song, you know, and actually I would say my initial feelings hearing it was sadness because I thought about like, he's, he's a good 10, 12 years younger than me. And I thought about the experiences that I had at his age and younger and experiences that I'd written about at his age and younger in my music and just sort of feeling this sadness about, wow, like this story is just still being told. And I think you can kind of hear that in my voice and in my verse, you know, it's a lot of reflecting back. I'm 30, almost 38 now. So, you know, it's a lot of me talking to my younger self, me talking to younger people. And I think you can hear in my voice a kind of sadness compared to say Havaya who has so much energy and in, in her delivery and stuff it's like I think you can hear my tone is more reflective and actually sad so yeah what I was trying to touch on were those realities that it seems have not changed like I wrote a song in uh, on my second album called Brother that was about basically the exact same thing, this experience of, well, this other complication that having black skin gives to your life, you know, being young is hard, period, right? Growing up is is hard. Part of what's hard about it and what's poignant about it is the fact that you don't have your head around it all. You just feel it on some level. You just feel the complications and the pressure, but you don't have your head around it. You haven't 
read enough. You haven't lived enough to really grasp what's going on. So that's why I, I, I tried to reflect that too in the lyrics saying like, it's a fine line. It's a fine line still. Always got to walk it straight. Plus we got to climb hills. Plus the place of minefield. Um, and then the second half of the verse, you know, I wanted it to feel dizzying because that's what the experience is like sometimes, especially if you don't have, you know, I was lucky to have parents and, and resources to help me get my head around it a little bit, even at a younger age. But, you know, if you don't at all, it's extremely, it's extremely dizzying. So that second half of the verse is talking about hands in your pockets, everyone's watching, show caution, don't let it show, though, these different pressures that come from stereotypes, that come from the pressure to refute stereotypes that and, and a confluence of things you know i think i say it better in the verse than i can than i can describe it in an interview but uh it can be a dizzying experience and and um and a lot of people don't a lot of us don't really survive it when when we should Walk it straight, plus we gotta climb hills, plus a place of mind feel. We just trying to find meals, hurt from time. Why they say the time heals? Push to leave home and stop when we behind wheels and they sign the crime bills. We can't all be signed, still. We need real jobs, no need to redefine real. I recall when I was small, like 1999. Like, I like to be fun too in, in my music and entertain and. And sometimes I feel like, man, I'd love to get back to that because that's a feeling I love to give people is just sort of like joy and surprise. And and so but so and so I feel a pressure not from people, but just from the realities that like I have too much on my mind to just have fun with the music. I guess you could call that pressure. You could also call it purpose. You know, it's not a bad thing. And I actually feel lucky that I have a way of responding that is creative and and can be beautiful and can touch people and bring people together because a lot of people don't have that. And the appreciation I've gained through hip hop evolution is for culture and what culture really means, you know, because we go city to city and era to era and get an appreciation for culture. Like, and by culture, I mean, life for people in a particular place and time, you know, and what it looks like and what it sounds like and how people enjoy themselves and how people express themselves, you know, in the very particular ways of a certain place and time. And I think that's just such a great gift for people because when artists have the ability to really capture that sense of place and time, you know, you can share that with the world and suddenly somebody in Toronto can un understand a little bit what it's like, what New Orleans feels like. You know, and somebody in Los Angeles can understand what Toronto feels like. So just like you were saying, we can all understand each other a little bit better. And we can all because there's um, yeah, we can just understand each other's realities, the, the particular experience of a person in a place and time. And and, you know, for me, I've experienced that in music, you know, in hip hop or, or even other genres. It's like I can listen to the Beach Boys and feel a sense of like man, this is what life was like for a young person, a young white person in California in the 60s or something. You know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. it, it has that ability for all of us to help us understand each other. So, and then the other the other part of it, uh, I think is just, is inspiration too. You know, just a, a feeling of hope, of hope and possibility that music can carry. You know, we talked about Kendrick Lamar's All Right at the outset. You know, that's just a song that makes people feel better you know, it's, it's comfort, it's hope. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. Because if we're talking about systemic racism, that's a deeply entrenched thing. And uh, if we're going to try to dismantle that, it's going to take time, it's going to take energy, it's going to take effort. And uh, we're going to need comfort and inspiration and hope through that process. So music has that amazing ability to do that too, right? Like just make you feel better and make you feel stronger and get you through difficult moments. You know, that's like, it's kind of magical. Let the creators create and let the creator be judged. I mean, too many mistakes to be grudging. Besides, all of us lost without love. Maybe some never get woke or tired of staying awake or party all night and distraught at the state of the day.
What what kinds of questions do you think we need to be asking ourselves right now, just as we sort of take in this moment, take a take a breath and sort of try and understand where we're, where we're at? My big thing, and I think a lot of people have different opinions on, about this, but my big thing is is this. It's very simply take a look at whatever metrics we have that measure well-being, okay, in this country, whether that's income, poverty levels, incarceration rates, murder rates, life expectancy. And you will see what we all know, which is that Black and Indigenous people are at the bottom, if you were to parse out those statistics. Okay. So I think really the project is like, how do we change that? That's not right. You know, I think it's very simply put, it's like, that's not right. The, the reasons for that are sociological, because race is sociological. What can we do to stop this from being the case, you know, from having these seemingly permanent underclasses that are racialized? Okay, so that's step one. Like, that's, uh, that's a difficult thing to face and to try to, you know, dismantle. Where do we go from there? Well, in my opinion, it's it's self-reflection. It's looking at our own families and friendships, our own communities and schools, our own workplaces, and really kind of scrutinizing and uh, and not in a not in a way of like just abusing yourself. You know, I don't want people to sort of abuse themselves. Like. Look, if you, let's say you live in some small, you know, white community, mostly white community, like don't think your community and your culture is bad. It's like, that's what it is, but that's who you are. That's where you come from. There's some, there's some beauty to that. Like there isn't any culture, but are there barriers? If you're honest with yourself, are there barriers to other people feeling like they can participate? Are there histories that have been erased? You know, all the, all these kinds of questions, I think that just like need to be asked because when they're not asked, they just perpetuate the status quo and the status quo, the status quo is what we just described, you know, at the very beginning, which is like these racialized underclasses. So, yeah, I guess to me, that's kind of step one and two. And I don't want to, I don't want to say like petitions and donations are bad because they're not, they're good and they're helpful. But sometimes that stuff can, I, I just think that's a mistake people make when they think that's like the solution or what they need to do when meanwhile they might, when meanwhile they might be like a vice principal at a school and, you know, when a black kid acts up at the school, they get suspended or the police get called, you know, when a white kid acts up in the school, you know, their parents are consulted and every accommodation is made for that child. You know what I mean? Like, let's not skip over the, the things that we actually have the power to affect and change. You know, let's not like absolve ourselves from that scrutiny and just kind of like try to fix a problem somewhere else. It's like the problem is is everywhere. Yeah, uh, I hope that's like a helpful answer. There's like so much that could be said, but to me, the problem is very simply certain realities. You know, like, look, if you look at Toronto, for example, if you were to ask anybody, so the, the question goes around, like, is Canada still racist? It's like, okay, tell me what are the worst neighborhoods in Toronto? They're the black neighborhoods in people's minds, you know? So like, the answer is already there to that sort of fundamental question. The, 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 the next question is like, well, what do we do about it? And can we all agree that that's, that's really wrong and it's, it's, it's immoral, actually? I, I just kind of think those are, those are the steps, you know, those are the steps recognizing the, the injustice and then, and then looking at our own lives and spheres of influence first and foremost and not trying to kind of point fingers or solve a problem that's out there. And, and there's some complicated things, um, you know, that have to be thought through. Cause like I said, you know, if you, if let's say you live in, you live in some smaller town in, in Ontario and it's mostly white and it's like, and your community is mostly white. It's like, I don't want people coming to the conclusion that that's bad. It's like, that's not bad. That's your life and that's your world. Now look at that. And are there barriers? Are there, you know, ways that systemic racism is 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 at work there are racialized people suffering are they at a are they at a disadvantage it's like so yeah so there's some complicated things to think through it's not simple i think that's hard for us now because so much in our world is simple like if i want food i just like get it you know 
I just tap my finger and I get it. It's like so much is simple that I think that presents a bit, a bit of a barrier and a challenge to us. You know, we're not as in touch with like the fact that things take time to change. So I just hope people can kind of like be in touch with that, understand that this stuff is difficult and, uh, and have the patience to move through it. It's like, this is how it plays out. And, you know, some of the specifics I talk about in the album, like relate to this time and place, but it's just the reality. So I guess, yeah, I guess it does come down to certain like systemic questions because it's like, this is how we respond in this system. You know, I think the the question of how does music respond now is like very, very interesting. Like even working on a short story about a war before I started working on it, you know, around 2016, 2017, and just thinking about, well, I guess what I was thinking about at that time was like how divided things had become politically, right? And like how everything was like a live wire, you know, whatever you, whatever you said, it seemed was whatever anyone he said was scrutinized a lot. And oddly enough, like I felt like this was the beginning of Trump too. So it was this weird time where what politicians said was like not scrutinized that much. Like what Trump says is like oddly slips by. And then what entertainers say gets like parsed out like to the syllable, you know what I mean? It was just like mm -hmm. this weird time. So just thinking about, well, you know, how do you make music in, in that climate? How do you speak into issues in that climate where everything might be, uh, you know, really, really scrutinized? So, yeah, the, I guess there's all these complicated questions for artists about how to respond, but ultimately, um, you know, we gotta trust our guts. I ain't even flagged up, no. I ain't even ganged up. Mighty gang, no handguns. I don't need your handcuffs. Black skin on the back spin. My name is Avai Mighty. I'm a rapper, singer, producer, DJ from Toronto, Canada. Yeah, I mean, I think that that one came together really cool. You know, Toby just asked if I was interested in being on the remix of a song that was already on his record still. I liked his record a lot. Um, I had talked about working with Toby a lot in previous years, and it just never came together. So this was a great opportunity to, to get in a room together and actually do something. And me, Toby, or Toby, myself, and Shad, we're in the studio and we just kind of kicked it. You know, I've heard of Shad and somehow I've been on the same record as Shad in the past, but never met Shad. So never really met in a real way. And so mm -hmm. that day I did, and it was really nice to be able to connect with the artist that I was recording the song with. And then Jazz Cartier added his verse after the fact. You know, sometimes you never get into a studio with people. It's all sent around. So it was cool to get in the lab with, you know, two of the three and, um, yeah, the record was already just so beautiful to begin with. I focused on what the chorus focused on, which is freedom. And that's the main lyric, freedom. I'm just trying to get in your arms tonight. And I just really focused on what that statement made me feel. And so you can see kind of like the way that I approach the verse is focusing on removal of that freedom and what that constraint would feel like if you were to put it into words. And interestingly enough, a lot of those words apply now to this current climate that we're seeing um, because this current climate is is not specific to now. It's just, it looks a little different in the pandemic. Most of us have never experienced a lot of these things, you know? So it was beautiful to be able to work on the song and do that song and the timing really, I hope, adds to that conversation, just anything that can add to the conversation. I mean, I think that utilizing your platform musically to speak to themes that are happening in the world, I think that's a really important way to have a conversation that you think is important and of value. I've heard a lot of protest songs that have come out as of late, some from like artists that you wouldn't expect. And for me, I've been kind of happy to see this different approach for some of the musicians who maybe otherwise wouldn't write about something so deep but because it's impacting the entire world to utilize this thing that's already connecting all people we have opinions that we are sharing as a sense of a community and we're all in a pandemic as well so all of this is being shared digitally you know to hear a song that kind of adds to that conversation to me is impactful as long as it's not the usage of the song is not to be divisive uh, I think it's impactful. And I think that for the artists that are doing it, it's a great way for them to lend lend their platform as a you know as an addition to that the conversation because it's an important conversation. I wrote a song called Thirteen, which is about the Thirteenth Amendment in the u s. Constitution, which essentially states that when slavery was, I guess, being, so-called abolished, they said that no person shall be in slavery or servitude 
unless they are deemed a criminal. And so at that point, you know, that was the shift. I always kind of recognized there being this parallel between the jail and prison system and and what we learned about slavery. And, and I think for me, learning about the, thir- the 13th Amendment painted the picture of what those parallels no longer seem to be, but actually are. I wrote a song about that. I think one of the stronger songs on the album kind of became a leading theme for the record in terms of it being a base theme for a lot of the other topics that I talked about. So I thought about naming the album 13 just off the strength of that. But then I realized that, well, not every song is about the 13th Amendment. And I didn't I didn't I didn't I didn't want it to be too on the nose. So off the strength of the number, I guess I started going down the numerology concept and thinking about the parallels of the 13th floor that we all know exists in the buildings that we're in. uh, And yet there's this narrative and rhetoric that the 13th floor doesn't exist. And as a society, we wholesomely and, and, and globally, like collectively, take on this idea that the 13th floor is not a thing, even though we know that it is. And I thought that was like the perfect way to represent the narratives that I am sharing on this record that I felt are so often dismissed, but are so obviously there. So that's kind of mm-hmm. how I came to the title. If we were to go by stats, prison is a goldmine camp with no buybacks. Nigga, it's a wizard in the system holding all my blacks. It started in 1640, shackles around my ankles. Melanin meant that I can't go to schools or read, cause who's gonna serve my master? Also, the pastor described all my people last. The sheep who exist to upkeep the land. We feed the economy, creep all the crops, but then feed on it modestly, consciously knowing you're lesser than. One that I heard by Lil Baby, an American rapper, and you just, I guess, wouldn't expect a rapper like uh, a rapper with the content that he's released before to drop a song that spoke so candidly about what was going on. But mm-hmm. uh, what I love is when an artist that you might not expect to talk about something does do it because it's going to reach their audience that you, you know, otherwise probably wouldn't receive that message. So I really like the idea of that. You know, there was. Uh, the J. Cole record, which I know it had some controversy surrounding it. The song was well-written, though, but I've always liked J. Cole's work. I don't know if there's anyone new specifically that I've noted since the change in the climate has, like, done anything specific that, like, wow, I remember in this moment that I want to speak to or share with the world. But collectively, I think a lot of people have surprised me, uh, whether it's other musicians or just, like, people, ex-coworkers or... And it's something like that, you know, people just having and utilizing their voice. And that's been really impactful. People that never say certain things, maybe start to say certain things. And it's, that's been big. It's just crazy to me that we're still having the conversation of like whether something that exists exists. Like it's just, it's like gaslighting at this point. Like it it exists. Like we there's the fact that like people still need convincing for me is so interesting. When we speak about, you know, Canada specific, I get that people don't know the history. I still don't even fully know the history. I did do a little bit of back dating and back research to understand a little bit about the history um, so that I could understand, you know, Canada's, some of Canada's part that it has played in, you know, the marginalizing of and, you know, dehumanizing of people of color and marginalized groups. And I learned about things that we've had in our laws and our legislations, in the way that we things were governed, in our treatment of different ethnic groups at different times, imposing taxes on specific people. We've done a lot of messed up stuff. Um, we've participated in or supported people in a lot of negative stuff as well as a country. And obviously when we speak to the plight of uh, indigenous people, when we look at the Truth and Reconciliation Act, obviously we know there's so much more there as well in specifics to Canada and the land. There's just a lot of, there's a lot that, that isn't said and isn't told. And if you did like very minute, I've done very minute research and I found a lot, you know, and there's so much more research to do and so much more, I'm, I'm, I'm sure things that I don't want to find, to find. So it's just, yeah, to me, it's like, for the people that want to have this conversation, like, there is actually no denying at this point because it exists. Like the people that are denying denying its existence are not really a part of the conversation to me. I'm not, I don't welcome that rhetoric because it's just, to me, it's illogical and I don't want to have discussion based in no logic, but specific to Canada, because that comment, that comment applies to things like what Doug Ford said, 
a couple of weeks ago about Canada not having roots in systematic racism and, and then having to immediately backtrack and can't even address. It's like, well, you're just saying what needs to be said. You don't actually believe that what people are telling you is happening. Like, how are the decisions that you make going to actually in, be inclusive of the people who are fighting this fight that you don't think exists? You know what I mean? So we're still trying to prove to people who have more power than we do that that there's a problem. And that, to me, is still an issue here in Canada. Yeah, there is an increase in the conversation. I love to see it. I love to participate in it. You know, seeing these marches, seeing the community sense, seeing, you know, groups of many groups of different people show up is great. But we're still fighting a system that is telling, like, flat out telling us that the things that we're seeing on their body cameras and whatnot, like things that we see and things that we live and things that we experience are not happening or are not real or... You know, if you just work hard, these things can't impact you. It's just not, it's, that to me is still a tough thing. And that, you know, irregardless of Canada or the States or whatever, like that is still a, a huge problem. Some of the questions we need to ask is what is the history that we don't know? How did, how did these things come to be? You learn about slavery. What preceded slavery? As a young black kid, I went to school and learned the, essentially that the origin of my people was to be taken from Africa and enslaved. And that's not the truth. So what comes before that? And what led to what happened next? And like, what is the actual history? I think once you understand why certain things happened, what resources were needed from what regions and what actions were taken in order to ensure that that happened, what colonists perspective was on what adv economic advancement looks like and whose backs was that built on. Like understanding to me those things helps to understand the mindset of this thing. Like just talking about it and not not understanding like where, where the roots of racism, where the roots of white supremacy, where the roots of segregation and discrimination come from. It's like the those who forget your past are doomed to repeat it concept. I think mm -hmm. it's very important that we root our future decisions based on the past. If we knew the things that we tried before, we'd know what to try now. I think one of the biggest issues for the Black community and our plight is that our history and culture that was stolen has been so far removed that we actually don't know what it is. Like, we're no longer trying to preserve it. We don't know what it is. We have to find it again. And I think even allies who have an interest in wanting to make that change, them understanding that knowledge as well as, you know, the people that are affected understanding the knowledge allows for a more insightful conversation. To me, to be able to have that talk about where we came from and why we were there and where we are now and what how the mindset is different, I think will help us propel and, and move forward. Which is why I think it's so important to celebrate the knowledge and history that is not spoken about because it will be forgotten completely if we don't take the time to remember now. Like this is our resurgence in this in this moment in time and this is our revolution. This is the time for us to tap into ourselves. So many of us have been too busy to care. And you know, I can't I can't imagine pandemic has nothing to do with this. I think us having time has a lot to do with this. But given the time and 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 that being maybe a universal thing or an energy thing, I think we need to utilize the fact that we've never had this time before and we'll never have it again. We don't play no race cards, dog. It's the life that we're living. Casual police checks, we all fit the description. Minorities in the streets, so how we rule in the prison? I don't get it. Black skin and brown eyes got me stigmatized. The media don't televise, lest somebody dies. They feeding us premium lies by the super size. That's how we grow desensitized to a mother's cry. It happens way too often. Front row up in the church, sun up in the coffin. Hands up, God, we suffer too many losses. More rallies, more riots, more city marches. And that cop that took his life, you know they dropped the charges. My name is Chocolate Owen O'Shaughnessy, artist, director, arranger, producer. I am the program coordinator for the African Nova Scotian Music Association. I'm also the keyboardist for Classified. I am a music director here at a local church called Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just an all-in-all musician. I, I, I want to use the word risky, but even in saying that, it's like this topic is not risky. It's just it is what it is. But often when you discuss racial discrimination or tackle this subject, you're met with a lot of opposition, you know. You're met with a lot of people who may not even believe that the story you're telling is real. 
So when I was writing the song, I, I was almost preparing myself to be rejected. We make up for less than 10% of Nova Scotia's population, but account for over 44% of police street checks. And it's like, how, how does something like that happen at a proportionately higher rate unless there's a target on your back? But um, well, we're seeing a lot of partnerships, a lot of conversations happening between government and local organizations. We're seeing a lot of initiatives and efforts being birthed out of this Black Lives Matter movement. We're even seeing the premier himself being very vocal, him himself declaring that Black Lives Matter. He himself um, attended the rally that we had on Spring Garden Road and was kneeling in the road in protest with everyone else, along with a lot of others on the police force. So I would love to, to see this momentum gain and for us to begin to bring reconciliation to the things that have happened in the past and the injustices that have been done to Indigenous communities and to the African Nova Scotian communities. I would like to see our voice just begin to matter. And I'm hopeful that it will happen, but we, we have the job of continuing to push the agenda so that it's not swept under the rug. Right now, willful ignorance is no longer getting a pass. We've done a great job in protecting fragility in that sense. You know, when, when it comes to certain topics, giving people the benefit of the doubt, oh, you just don't know any better, or you're not a part of the community. But I find now a lot of us black people are just like, no, that we've had enough. The information is out there. Um, it, it's plain for everyone to see, and it's your job if you do think and if you do believe that all lives matter. It's your job to educate yourself. It's your job to pay attention to what's happening in the community right around you. So a lot of willful ignorance is being demolished. It's no longer okay to say, oh, I didn't know. It's no longer okay to make certain comments and then think it's lighthearted or, you know, just playful. I, I find that there's definitely... Well, we're forcing people to take responsibility for their words and for their actions. I, I kind of love this climate because we're finally starting to address, like you said, a lot of things that have been swept under the a lot of things that we just kind of deem as the norm. We're no longer okay with the norm. We need change. And if that's going to happen, there, there has to be a level of militancy in the way we speak and in the way we act. I, I think it's... It's, it's necessary for us to be that specific because I think what we're trying to get across is that it is no longer okay to be complacent, to raise your hands up and say, oh, not my problem, but back away. That does not mean you're not racist. It just means that this issue is not a big enough issue to you or you don't care enough about it to get involved. That is no longer okay because in order to abolish the system we're in now, in order to change and to revolutionize what we're going through right now, we need the ones who benefit from the supremacy, we need the ones who benefit from the privilege to speak out against the system. And if you're not willing to do that, then I'm forced to believe it's because you're comfortable in this system and you're comfortable in your supremacy. So it's not enough to just say, I'm not racist, no. When we're rallying, we need you to participate. When we're crying out about social injustices, we need you to participate. When we're donating funds, when we're on the front lines trying to evoke change, it's not enough for you to say, go ahead, brother, all the best. No, we need you, boots on the ground, to participate. If you yourself are a humanitarian, if you truly believe all lives matter, you have to show us your action. So I absolutely understand the anti-racist movement because for too long, people have been getting away with saying I'm not racist because I didn't say the N-word or I didn't cause any offense. Sure, but your brother did. Did you correct him? Your mom did. Did you correct her? You gotta be anti-racist. You gotta put a stop to when you see it. It's no longer okay to just walk away and say, oh, that's someone else's problem. The best apology is changed behavior. To start looking at people from a different lens and to start saying that you are a human being and so am I, and I'm going to love and respect you as a human being rather than a racialized group or a minority. On a basic level, I would say to operate in love and, and to pay attention to how you interact with those who are not like you. And on a corporate level, support the people that support you. I could never imagine the pain in the mother's heart when life takes a turn for the worse and creators up becomes another canvas that will never be completed. I'm a few degrees away and a thousand times defeated. My energy's depleted, but I want to stand and fight. Swinging with the spirits that have traveled back into the light. I feel the tears.
and depression, fears and aggression, woven in society from years of oppression. A big thanks goes to all our guests on the program today. Sandy Hudson, Shad, Havaya Mighty, and Owen Osan Lee for sharing their insight and experience with us. This program was produced by myself, Craig Clemens, Regan McDonnell, and Tony Young. Images by Andre Grant, and social media by Roomjoom Jiga. And I'm your host, Laura McInnes Ray. Thanks for listening. MC in the booth or a PhD in the suit. Yo, when we